but now we can actually begin since it is 9.30 on the East Coast. Officially, let me say good morning and welcome to Sunday School. We are pressing on during this very, very interesting time, a, a difficult time, a, a challenging time, a time of testing from the Lord, but it is a, actually a good time, a good time for his people because God is always good to his people, even through the difficulties. And praise the Lord that we have this ability to continue a kind of fellowship and to continue the ministry of the word via the technology that we have. If you haven't said good morning in the chat yet, uh, please do so just so I know that you're here and that you're listening. I really appreciate that. And uh, let's get let's get into our study. We are continuing in the book of Joshua and actually finishing in the book of Joshua today. Our lesson is entitled, Israel Receives a Land. As we've been moving through the book of Joshua, we've been seeing God fulfilling his promises to Abraham to give Abraham seed a land. And not just any land, the land of Canaan, the one specifically prepared by God for his people. And this was to be accomplished by means of conquest. This land would be received by means of conquest. More specifically, God was bringing about victory for Israel and defeat and judgment for the wicked peoples of the land. And last time we saw just how important it was for the people of Israel to remain faithful to God if they wanted to keep experiencing victory and blessing. We saw what happened with Achan when he took something underneath the ban. And then when Israel dealt with that curse among the people, how Israel was then brought back to just staggering victory by God. Now today we're actually looking at the completion of the conquest. Oh, someone's maybe having a little difficulty seeing me. Hopefully all of your connections are good. And hopefully you're all, you're all seeing my audio and video just fine. It seems to be fine on my end. So if you're having any issues, hopefully, hopefully there's some things you can do on your end. But as I said, today we're, we're looking at the completion of the conquest. The assigning of the tribes to their various land allotments. And Joshua's final exhortation to the people. So... A lot of sections to cover here, basically looking at the second half of Joshua. And as we go along, some questions that we want to consider are, did Joshua really bring the conquest to an end? Did God, in fact, bring to pass the promises that he had given to Abraham when it came to the land? And how should God's faithfulness to Israel and Israel's faithfulness to God and the blessing they experienced for it, how should that inform and teach us how we should live today? Because these words, they were not meant for simply Israel way back when, but they are also meant for us. This is God's holy, inspired word. Well, let's consider those questions, and we want to answer them today. Let's pray as we get into our text. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in firm control and that you are always good. Lord, you are unchanging, and that's so wonderful because... If you had changed, well, then something would be deficient in your character. You would be improving or you'd be getting worse. But that's impossible for you because you are the perfect God. And you have acted perfectly in biblical history and you've given us this perfect word. And you are even acting perfectly today, even with the coronavirus and all the other things going on. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to explain this word well and accurately and helpfully and help the people to take it to heart. Listen, be encouraged, be sobered, be convicted. Holy Spirit, please work among those who listen now. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and open to Joshua chapter 11. 
Joshua chapter 11 is where we're starting today. We left off last time with Joshua 10 and that momentous and miraculous day and Joshua's campaign, starting his campaign in the south. Remember the five kings gathered against the people of Gibeon who had made a treaty with Israel. Israel came to their aid. After that victory, in the latter part of chapter 10, which we didn't go over last time, but just it's important background, Joshua takes Israel on a campaign in southern Canaan, besieging various important cities, capturing them, and destroying the people there. He subdues the area, destroys and drives out the inhabitants. And that leads us right into our new passage today, Joshua 11, verses 1 to 23. So follow along with me as I read that entire chapter. We're going to do some analysis of this passage. Joshua 11, verses 1 to 23. Here's what God's word says. And it came about, when Jabin king of Hatzor heard of it, that he sent to Jobab king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were of the north in the hill country, and in the Araba, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor in the west, to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite in the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. They came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. Then the Lord, that is Yahweh, covenant name there, said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Miram and attacked them. Yahweh delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as Great Sidon and Misrephoth Maim and the valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left to them. Joshua did to them as Yahweh had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor and struck its king with the sword. For Hatzor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. Just as Moses the... Oh, skipped ahead there. There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hotzor with fire. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them, just as Moses the servant of Yahweh had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds, except Hotzor alone, which Joshua burned. All the spoil of these cities and the cattle the sons of Israel took as their plunder, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. Just as Yahweh had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that Yahweh had commanded Moses. Thus, Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, all that land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak that rises towards Zair, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the, sons, with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. 
they took them all in battle. For it was of Yahweh to harden their hearts, to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Then Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod some remained. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that Yahweh had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Thank you for going through that passage with me. Let's use our inductive Bible study method. Start our study of this passage with just basic observations on what we read. Notice that we have, first of all, a new leader opposing Israel. In chapter 10, it was Adani Zedek, who was king of Canaanite Jerusalem, who gathered a coalition of kings in southern Canaan to attack Gibeon and attack Israel. But now, in verses 1 to 5, we see that King Jabin of Hatzor is leading a northern coalition of kings against Israel and against Israel's God. Now, Hatzor is worth getting a little bit of background about. Hatzor, or Hazor, you can pronounce it whatever, whatever way. Hatzor was another important fortified city, uh, this time in northern Canaan, north of the Sea of Galilee. You can see it on the map here, on, on the screen. North of the Sea of Galilee, on the edge of the well-watered Hula Valley, it sat right on top of a major trade route, the International Coastal Highway, or the Via Maris. It not only controlled the surrounding valley, but it also prevented access to Canaan via the northeast. So kind of like Jericho, it's a gateway into Canaan. Now, Hatzor is probably one of the largest, if not the largest city in ancient Palestine. As many as 40,000 people lived inside the walls. And that doesn't count the people who would have gone into the city during times of war or times of danger. So we can understand why verse 10 says of Hatzor that it was formerly the head of all these kingdoms. All the kingdoms that are joining with Hatzor to oppose Israel, Hatzor is the largest and the greatest. But notice why Jabin puts together this coalition. In verse 1 of our chapter, it says that he heard something. What was it that he heard? Well, he heard about Israel's devastating campaign in southern Canaan. He's looking at his fellow kings and his fellow kingdoms in the north and saying, we better band together. We've got to work together if we're going to overcome these Israelites, these Israelite invaders. We need to defeat them. And so they work hard to put together an opposing army. And notice what we hear about this army in verse 4. It says that there were as many people as the sand that is on the seashore. How much sand is on the seashore? That's an uncountable number. So this is a huge horde of people that is gathering against Israel. And notice it also says that they had with them very many horses and chariots. Now this is the first time we see chariots in the conquest narrative. The last time we saw chariots it was with Pharaoh with what took place at the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. And remember what people thought about chariots at this time. They were deadly war machines. They struck terror into the hearts of those who faced them. They could demoralize entire armies. And Israel is now facing chariots along with this large number of opposing soldiers and horses, it says. Horses were also considered very dangerous, horses and horsemen, due to their speed, their power, and maneuverability. 
So Israel is facing an extremely dangerous enemy. They are large in number, and they are well armed, according to verses 1 to 5. Yet God had already told Israel what to do in this kind of situation. You don't need to turn there, but Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1 says, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, which is exactly what Israel is facing, do not be afraid of them. For Yahweh your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. We see the same kind of assurance given right after the description of the army. In verse 6, Yahweh specifically assures Joshua that Yahweh will bring victory even against this vast and well-equipped horde. Yahweh even commands Joshua to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots after the battle. Now, what does it mean to hamstring a horse? It's a little bit of a difference of opinion here. It depends on the muscle group involved. Some think that hamstringing is to cut the hamstring group of muscles in a horse's legs. And if you do that to a horse with that muscle group inoperable, well, the horse can't walk. And basically that horse is going to die. It's possible that God was commanding this, destroy the horses. I think it's more likely, though, that God means something else. Because the Hebrew word translated hamstring, it doesn't refer to the specific muzzle or tendon that would be cut. Probably these animals are going to be going to be um, uh, maimed, to, for lack of a better word, in such a way that they will continue to live, but they'll be unable to be used in war. Apparently there was a way that one could do that. Anyways, God commands Joshua, deal with the horses and deal with the chariots so they cannot be used in war anymore. Notice how Israel comes upon their enemies in verses 7 to 8. It says they come upon them suddenly, and what happens? They defeat them, and they pursue them until no survivor has left them. And they pursue them to various cities all over northern Canaan. You can see that on the map. And then in verse 9, we see Joshua obeys God's commands regarding the horses and chariots. And then notice the aftermath of the battle in verses 10 to 15. It says Israel captures all of the cities of the kings that face them. They take the plunder and they put to death all of the people as God commanded through Moses. And remember, that was part of God's command as part of, their, as part of God's judgment on the wicked people of the land, as part of God's safeguarding Israel from learning the idolatrous and wicked practices of the people of the land. He says you must put them to death. Don't leave them alive or else they will become a snare to you. This was a unique judgment being pursued by God against the people of the land via Israel. But Israel destroys the people of these cities, captures their plunder, and notice something unique that Israel does with Hatzor. It says that they burn the city with fire. Now, let's see if you can answer the following question in the chat if you've been paying attention over the last few lessons. Which two other cities in the conquest, according to the book of Joshua, are also burned with fire like Hatzor? See if you can answer that question. If you can't, that's okay. So actually, the very first city they conquered, Jericho, was burned with fire. Also, I, the city that had once defeated Israel in battle, that, that kingdom, I was also burned, and then finally, Hatzor. So in total, according to the book of Joshua, three cities in the conquest were burned to the ground. Now notice in verses 16 to 20, we get a summary of the conquest of all the different regions in Canaan that have been conquered up to this point. 
And in verse 18, we're told specifically that Joshua wages war a long time with the kings of these areas. Now, this is an important statement because otherwise we might get the wrong impression. You can move pretty quickly through the chapters of Joshua and you might get the impression that everything took place in maybe a year. But actually, it took longer than that. We, we get an important time detail regarding the conquest in Joshua 14. Joshua 14, verses 6 to 12, uh, I won't read through that passage with you, but Caleb makes a certain comment, and he says that he was 40 years old when he spied out the land, but he was 85 when he undertook to reconquer Hebron from Anakim at the end of Joshua's campaigns. Now, if we do a little math here, Israel wandered 38 years in the wilderness. They spent two years getting to and staying at Sinai, and then there were 38 years in the wilderness after Israel spied out the land. So we can figure out from these details just how long the conquest was. If Caleb was 85, minus 40 years from what his age at, at when he spied out the land, and then minus the 38 years of wilderness wandering, and how many years do you have left over? About seven years. So this conquest of Canaan probably took about seven years. Beginning likely around 1406 BC, and coming to, an around, coming to an end around 1398 BC. So this did take a while. Now notice in verse 20 of Joshua chapter 11, the explanation as to why no one aside from the Gibeonites sought to make peace with the people of Israel. It was actually because of Yahweh. Yahweh hardened the hearts of the Canaanites so that they might be destroyed in battle against Israel. This was part of the judgment of God for the people's sins. Now notice verses 21 to 22. We get a little report about Joshua's effort against the Anakim. Now, who are the Anakim? Or the sons of Anak as an alternate description. We actually can go back to Numbers 13, verse 33 to find out who they are. Remember, when the spies were first going through Canaan, they said, oh, we spotted the Nephilim there. And they were referring to the sons of Anak. And this is their description based on encountering the Anakim. They said, we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So who are the Anakim? Well, they're apparently a clan, a group of very large people, even giants. So they would be very feared. You wouldn't want to face a giant in battle. But look what we see here at the end of our chapter. Joshua goes after the Anakim and essentially annihilates their presence in the hill country or the central region of Judah and Israel, uh, driving most of the Anakim to the coast. That's where those cities are that are mentioned. Notice one of the places that the Anakim settle is in the city of Gath. And if you know a little bit more about the Old Testament, do we see a significantly tall person later in scripture who comes from Gath, who perhaps was a descendant of the Anakim? I'm, of course, thinking of Goliath from Gath. We hear that he's from Gath in 1 Samuel 17, 4. Finally, notice in verse 23, we read, Joshua took the whole land according to all that Yahweh had spoken to Moses. So there it is, a declaration that the whole land has been taken, the conquest is complete. And thus the final statement in chapter 11 makes good, good sense, thus the land had rest from war. So here it is. Finally, Israel has its land. God's promise is fulfilled. Time to rest and relax and enjoy, right? But notice something. Take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 13. Joshua 13 verses 1 to 6. 
I'm not going to go over Joshua 12. Joshua 12 is a rehearsal of the different kings that Israel defeated and destroyed via their conquest. But look what Joshua 13 verses 1 to 6 says. It says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when Yahweh said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. Hmm. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron to the north. It is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazite, the Ashadite, the Ashkelonite, the Gittite, the Ekronite, and the Avite to the south, all the land of the Canaanite and Mayara that belongs to the Sidonians, as far as Aphek to the border of the Amorite, and the land of the Gebalite, and all of Lebanon toward the east, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon, as far as Labo Hamath. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon, as far as Mithrafith Maim, all the Sidonians, I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel, only allotted to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now this is really interesting, because you might be asking yourself, wait a second, is the conquest done or not? In verse 1 of chapter 13, God says, much of the land remains to be possessed. In verses 2 to 6, they describe the regions where the enemies remain. Basically, and I'll put up a map to show this. Basically, it's the regions of the coastal plains. It's the valleys. You can see this on the, the right map here. So here's another valley over here. And it's the northern section, the, the northern section of Lebanon. We can compare this to the description of the territory that God allots to Israel according to Numbers 34, verses 1 to 12. That's the map here I have on the left. Now, there are slightly different interpretations of the exact borders of that description. But Numbers 34, 1 to 12 definitely includes a larger area, the blue area here on the map, than what Israel has conquered up to this point. So there's a bit of discrepancy between this declaration that Joshua has taken the whole land and God's declaration that much territory still needs to be taken in conquest. Actually, though, this wouldn't have been a surprise to Joshua. God actually told the people of Israel before Israel entered the land that the conquest would not happen all at once. Actually, Exodus 23, Exodus 23, verses 29 to 30, right after God proclaims to the people that he will drive out the people of the land of Canaan before Israel, he says this, God says, I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. And this is also very significant. Notice the reason why God says that he will not drive out and destroy the people of Canaan all at once. It's because Israel will not be big enough will not be populous enough to settle in all the empty land. Actually, something that we see in the book of Joshua and even in the beginning of Judges is that sometimes Israel has to go back and reconquer areas that they already conquered under that they already conquered under Joshua because their enemies had moved back into the area. This shows that Israel did not have enough people and enough resources to sufficiently settle in and fortify all of the cities that they conquered, even under Joshua. So you can see why it wouldn't be it wouldn't be profitable, profitable for them to try and conquer all of the territory at once. They just couldn't, they couldn't live in it all. They needed to settle, grow as a people, and then they would continue the conquest. So we see these, these two, what maybe seem like contradictory 
declarations. In the end of Joshua 11, we're told the whole land is conquered. And then in Joshua 13, we're told, no, there's more to go. Now, what are we to do with these different details? Well, that's why we go next to the interpretation step. We start with just basic observations of the details of the passage, and then we take those details together once we've observed what we can, and we ask questions of interpretation. So I'm going to do that with you now. So here's the question. In terms of the battles and sieges in which Israel has participated up to this point, how does the battle with the northern kings compare? Perhaps as you think about this, you notice that on the one hand, this is different than anything Israel has faced. This is the most challenging battle yet. A vast amount of enemy soldiers, uncountable amount, and they have advanced technology. They have the horses and the chariots. Israel has not faced an enemy quite like this before. It was getting harder and harder and harder. They faced a coalition of kings in the south, but nothing like the northern kings. So this was different. This was a new challenge. And yet, it was no different from what Israel had experienced before because the victory was just as easy through God. God was the one who said, I will give you the victory. And that's exactly what it did here. It didn't matter how many enemies Israel was facing. It didn't matter whether they had chariots or horsemen. God still swore that he would give the victory, and he did so. The people of Israel trusted God, and they experienced the victory. So in some ways, this was the most difficult challenge. In other ways, it was just like what Israel had experienced already. Now here's another question. The gathering of this large number of kings and the armies, it represented the, the greatest test Israel has experienced in the conquest thus far. But why was this large attacking horde of northern kings and their armies, why was it actually a blessing for Israel in the end? I don't know if you thought about it, but this really is a good thing for Israel. And why do I say that? Well, on the one hand, Israel gets to see God's mighty power put on display. If the battle were not so great, if the challenge were not so daunting, then they wouldn't have gotten to revel as much in just how faithful and powerful God is on behalf of his people. This was a, a titanic army that was facing them, and yet they got to see God bring the deliverance. So that was a blessing. But also, just in practical terms, this gathering of the northern coalition against Israel it was a blessing because Israel got to deal with their enemies all at once. <laughs> Let's face it, Joshua is taking a number of years to conquer these various cities, deal with these various kingdoms, but because all of the northern kings, or the majority of the, the great ones, gather against Israel, Israel can deal with them all at once. They decisively defeat the army in battle, this army gathered against them, and then they can go and besiege the various cities that these armies came from. No longer are the armies holed up in the cities to be able to defend them, so Israel has a somewhat easier time taking care of the cities in the north. So what seemed like a, a great challenge and maybe a great test was actually for Israel's blessing in the end. It made things easier for Israel. Now here's a question I'd like you to answer in the chat if you can. Why did Yahweh command for Joshua and Israel to demilitarize the horses and destroy the chariots after the battle with the northern kings? What do you think? You might think these advanced technologies, these, these horses, these chariots, that'd be a great thing for Israel to, to take on as their own resource. But why did God say, destroy them, actually? Make them so that you can't use them in war.
Yeah, Mark posts, horses were a symbol of man's strength. And Greg mentions trust. This is about trust in Yahweh. Avera writes, he did not want them to trust in horses and chariots. And, and Layla says they needed to rely on God's power. And you're right. This is, this is all what it's about. We even see this same idea reflected in the Psalms, right? That we don't put our trust in horses or chariots with the strength of men. God's people are called to put their trust in Yahweh himself. And so God is really trying to protect Israel by saying, I don't want you to be swayed by these new war machines and technology that you might receive. The victory comes through me. It doesn't come via these these specific technologies or implements. So actually, show your faith in me by just laying aside those technologies. I will bring you the victory. And so that's why we see God say, just get rid of those chariots. And this is this is right along the lines of a command given by God in the Torah when it comes to the kings of Israel. Later kings of Israel were not to multiply horses for themselves, and along with that chariots. Why? So they, they would not learn to trust in their own strength rather than trusting in Yahweh. Now, God could have brought victory to Israel even if they had horses and chariots, but he said, I want, you to, I want you to be able to just see very clearly that I'm the one bringing the victory. You don't need these advanced machines and technologies. Yeah, Mark notes that Psalm 33, I think, is maybe the, the psalm that I was thinking of. So good, thank you for answering that question. Now, here's another question, and again, see if you can answer this in the chat. Why does Israel burn hot sore? Why does Israel burn hot sore? They don't burn all the cities. They burned a few of them, and hot sore is one of them. So why hot sore? Give you a moment to answer. Judy mentions also Psalm 20, verse 7, in relation to the previous question. Thanks, Judy. Yeah, Mark notes the hots were represented the, the biggest enemy that Israel faced. This would have been considered the greatest, if not, uh, or one of the greatest, if, if not the greatest city in Palestine. And what do the people of Israel do? They burn it to the ground. It was the head of all the kingdoms, as the passage noted, and as, as Don brought back to our attention. So by destroying it, by burning it, this was another testimony to the people, peoples around Israel and to Israel itself, that the Lord is mighty. He is able to destroy any enemy, even the greatest kingdom. Now think about it, really all the cities that Israel burns, it was all a kind of memorial, an ongoing testimony. Jericho, the first city. I, the city that had defeated Israel. And Hatzor, this greatest city of the north. Each one of them is left in ruins as an eternal testimony to God's power to bring victory and God's powerful judgment on those who resist him and those who continue in sin. And I think, um, as Liz mentioned, this is partly true um, to prevent the enemy from returning into the area, uh, occupying those cities and representing a continual thorn in Israel's side. It's interesting, actually, Hatzor will have to be reconquered. We see that 
we see that in the book of Judges. So this is one of the cities, because of its strategic location, it will be refortified by some of Israel's enemies and it'll have to be conquered again. But Joshua's destruction of the city, Israel's destruction of the city, was a powerful testimony to the people of the land. Now Israel, as I said, did not do this with all the cities. And why not? Why, didn't, why not just make all the cities a memorial by burning them uh, as a testimony to the people of the land, as a testimony to the Israelites? There's a very practical reason for that, and it's that Israel needs a place to live. Understand that in, in the conquest, God is not just giving the people of Israel a land. They are actually also receiving a land fully furnished. They are inheriting cities and farms and vineyards and houses and animals and many other treasures. God was doing this for the people of Israel as a gift and as a grace. And he even reminds them in the Torah, think about what I'm giving you and don't forget this grace that is being shown to you. Because if you do, and if you turn away from me, and if you disobey the terms of my covenant, well then you will experience what judgment I put on the people of the land. The things that you make, the houses that you build, others will inhabit them. The crops that you bring in, others will eat them. And ultimately, I'll remove you from the land and put other people here. So, though this was a great gift to Israel, it was one that they were not to take for granted, lest they experience the removal of these things that they had received. By the way, this fact that most of the cities of the conquest were not destroyed or burned, but actually taken intact by the people of Israel, it actually accords with what we've found so far archaeologically. Now, there's no evidence of a wide-scale campaign of destruction in the 1400s BC in Canaan, except at a few sites like the ruins of Jericho and the ruins of Hatzor. Now, people who don't know the Bible, they think that this is proof that the Bible is not true. You see, oh, we don't see this big, uh, this devastating conquest, all these burn layers in the, in the lands of Canaan and the cities of Canaan at this time. So the Bible must not be true. Actually, if you pay attention to what the Bible actually says, what we have found accords with what the Bible says. There shouldn't have been much of a disruption in the archaeological, archaeological layers of the city, except in a very few sites, because God was in fact giving these cities intact to the people of Israel. Now let's get to one of our bigger questions. Certainly the Bible is not contradicting itself when it says in Joshua 11 that the whole land was conquered, and in Joshua 13 that much remained to be conquered. The Bible is God's perfect word, and as Jesus says, scripture cannot be broken. So in what sense is Joshua 11 true? That Joshua and Israel conquered the whole land, and thus God's promise to give the land to Israel was fulfilled. In what sense is that true? See if you can answer that in the chat. What sense is chapter 11 true and not really in contradiction to Joshua 13? Certainly there must be an answer to this question. In what sense did Joshua and Israel conquer the whole land? I think we can answer. All right, Mark, Mark notes the promise was given and the people were in fear. 
Uh, Vera notes they had dominion over it, but not possession. Jeremiah and uh, perhaps that's Shaji or Jeremiah. God has given them the land that they live in. That's true. I think essentially we can all, and these answers I think are all right, all correct. The land was essentially conquered. They had essentially received it because all the genuine military threats to Israel have been dealt with. Israel has broken the back of the resistance in Canaan. All that's really left is mop-up operations to be pursued not by Israel as a whole, but the individual tribes. Canaan was essentially conquered. Israel had essentially received the land. Thus, God's word was fulfilled. He said he would give them the land. They have received it. And even with the territory they've taken up to this point, it is enough for all the people of Israel to live in. Israel, as I said before, would not be ready at that moment to take on new territory. The land would need to have rest for a while, which is why the end of Joshua 11 says what it does. The land had rest from war. But as Israel would grow, and as the tribes continue to trust in God and to seek God's will, they would successfully dislodge the remaining inhabitants and obtain the rest of their inheritance. So God's ancient word to Abraham is indeed being fulfilled here. Just as he said to Abraham, for instance, in Genesis 12:7, God said to Abraham, To your descendants I will give this land. In Genesis 15:18, God says to Abraham, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Referring the river of Egypt there, not the Nile, but probably the brook of Egypt, the Wadi el-Arish in the Sinai Peninsula, and the river Euphrates. There's an arm of the Euphrates River that kind of descends into Lebanon, and uh, that those really comprise the two the two ends of Israel's assigned inheritance according to Numbers 34. So Israel had essentially received God's promise, and it was only a matter of time and their own obedience that they would receive the full amount of land portioned to them by God. So consider the conquest narrative up to this point, and particularly what we have in Joshua 11. What does this account show us or emphasize to us about God? Well, many of the same things that we've seen in the previous lessons. God is mighty to save on behalf of his people, but also mighty to destroy those who oppose him. God is good to his own. God is sovereign. He's in control of all the kings, all the kingdoms, and the land. He is holy and wrathful against sin. We see that in the judgment being precipitated by the people of Israel on the people of the land, and even on Israel when they are not willing to follow God. We see that God is just. He gives, uh, he gives the inhabitants of the land what they deserve according to their sin, but he is also faithful and just on behalf of his people, faithful to his word, to Abraham, and to the promises given through Moses and through Joshua to the people. And we see that God is unchanging. It's not like he made a promise to Abraham and to Joshua and he said, oh, sorry, changed my mind. Or, yeah, I really wanted to do that for you, but I'm just not able like I thought I was. No, God is unchanging and thus faithful. And of course, all these qualities that we're seeing on display in God, they ought to be an encouragement to us. Even us in our own situation with the coronavirus and the tasks set before us. Because the same God of the people of Israel and Joshua if you are in Christ, he is your God too. He is our God. Israel was tested in battle against large armies. 
we are tested by the spiritual warfare that we now undertake and the testing of sickness and stay-at-home directives and other uncomfortable circumstances. This is a testing from God to us. But the same God who is sovereign over that time and Israel's conquest, he is sovereign over us. And just as he worked for their good, he is working for our good. So we can learn from Israel's experience with God. God can be trusted to take care of his people and bring to pass to them what he promised. He calls on his people to simply look to him in faith and obedience. And we'll say more about this later in terms of application, but you can see there's already great application from what we've examined thus far. But let's move on in the book of Joshua. In Joshua 13 to 21, we begin a long section of the book where Joshua assigns by lot, that is by casting lots, not exactly dice, but something like that, casting lots to portion to the nine and a half tribes who have not yet been settled their tribal inheritances. Now, there's various specific descriptions about the inheritances given to each tribe. We're not going to look at those specifically. I'm just going to summarize it via a map. But again, this is in Joshua 13 to 21, so you can look at that later. You see here on the map, three of the tribes already received their portion on the eastern side of the Jordan. We have Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. On the western side of the Jordan, the first inheritances, inheritances given are to the major tribes, Judah in the south, and then the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh in the north. They essentially are given the heartland of Canaan, the hill country, and also some of the coastal area. And we have a number of minor tribal inheritances assigned in between and around those allotments. We've got Dan and Benjamin kind of squeezed in between Judah and the sons of Joseph. And then we have uh, also Simeon is in the middle of Judah's inheritance, right in the midst of it. And then the four other tribes, Asher, Zebulun, Issachar, and Naphtali, in the north on the western side of Galilee. And you notice one tribe is not mentioned here in the tribal allotment, and that's Levi. They didn't get any specific territory. That's because God was doing something special with them. They were given cities to live in throughout the people of Israel, and God was going to provide for the people of Levi via the offerings and contributions that the people of Israel make to Yahweh. God was going to treat the Levites as his own special possession, and they received the offerings of Israel. And as they lived throughout the land of Israel, they were really to serve as teachers in Israel. They were to be teachers of the covenant to the rest of the tribes. And people could go to the Levite towns to, to consult and to learn. So we have all the tribes of Israel now given a portion, decided by Lot, according to God's providence, according to what he knows what would be best for each tribe. The Lot falls to them according to that purpose of God. But do note, from this map that you see before you, that a fair amount of the assigned territory is not yet in Israelite hands. There's still people of the land living in many of these territories. Each tribe then would be responsible to conquer the assigned territory as that tribe grew and as they trusted in God. Of course, that's, that's actually what Joshua exhorts the people to do at the end of the book of Joshua. So let's actually head there. Take your Bible and move over to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua 22, we won't go over that 
talks about a mis misunderstanding that takes place between the tribes on the east side of the Jordan and the tribes on the west side of the Jordan, which they're able to resolve without bloodshed. But in Joshua 23 and 24, we get a description of certain final assemblies that Joshua convenes for all Israel. And in these assemblies, well, actually, let's read it together before, before I make comment on it. Look at Joshua 23, verses 1 to 16. Uh, these last portions, we don't have time to comment in full, but I want us to notice a few things, especially from Joshua 23. Look at Joshua 23 as I read it. It says, Now it came about after many days, when Yahweh had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years, and you've seen all that Yahweh your God has done to all these nations because of you. For Yahweh your God is he who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. Yahweh your God, he will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you, and you will possess their land, just as Yahweh your God promised you. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you are to cling to Yahweh your God, as you have done to this day. For Yahweh has driven out great and strong nations from before you, and as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand, for Yahweh your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So, take diligent heed to yourselves to love Yahweh your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, Know with certainty that Yahweh your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you, and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which Yahweh your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. It shall come about. Just as all the good words which Yahweh your God spoke to you have come upon you, so Yahweh will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of Yahweh your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of Yahweh will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. Notice just some powerful exhortations from Joshua here to the people Notice a few things with me. He calls on the people to continue the conquest in obedience to God's law. As they grow as tribes, they are to continue the conquest. He encourages the people by calling upon them to remember everything that God has done for them thus far. And notice the warning he gives in verse 7. He says, do not associate with the people of the land or serve their gods. And you can see even a little progression in verse 7. Don't mention the name of their gods, don't swear by them, and don't serve them and bow down to them. Don't even start by mentioning the name of their gods. And then in verse 12, Joshua warns the people not to intermarry with the people of the land. Now remember, this has nothing to do with race. This has all to do with idolatry. 
just as Moses said in the Torah, he says, do not intermarry with them, because if, they, if you do, they will lead you astray from Yahweh. And there will be consequences from that. Moses foretold the consequences, and they're repeated here in verse 13. He says, if you intermarry, if you associate with the people of the land, then God will no longer give you victory in your battles. And these intermarried peoples will become a snare to you, a painful snare. And ultimately, you will perish from this good land that you have obtained. You will, you will be destroyed from it. You'll be removed from it. And notice the way Joshua underscores this in verses 14 to 16. He reminds the people that just as they've seen all good, all God's good covenant promises come to pass to them, pass for them up to this point. So, in the same way, they will see God's covenant curses come upon them in the same faithful way if they forsake Yahweh, if they serve sin, if they go after idols, and if they merely look to indulge themselves. This is a powerful exhortation. And Joshua says similar things in the next chapter. Look at Joshua 24. Now, this one we won't read most of it. Joshua convenes a covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem. Shechem is a city right in the middle of the tribal inheritances on the western side of the Jordan. And in this meeting, Joshua again rehearses all the good that Yahweh has done for his people. And he calls upon the people to choose once and for all, which God are you going to serve? This is where we get that famous statement from Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How do the people respond to this call for decision from Joshua? Well, they swear to serve Yahweh and to serve him only. And Joshua sets up a stone pillar at Shechem as a witness, a memorial to the covenant renewal ceremony that they all undergo, a witness even to what Israel has sworn, we will serve Yahweh alone. And does this, do the people of Israel hold good to their promise? Notice verse 31 in chapter 24. It tells us a little bit after what happened after the death of Joshua. It says, Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of Yahweh which he had done for Israel. This generation, it took Joshua's exhortation seriously. It remembered who Yahweh is and what works he had done. And thus, they followed Yahweh and they were blessed for it. But what about the next generation? It's actually here that we see the purpose of the book of Joshua. This book is written as a testimony and a call to the new generations of Israel, after the generation of Joshua, that they might walk in faithfulness before God, that they might see his faithfulness on their behalf in the past, to bring blessing and victory when the people proceeded by faith, and to bring chastening and judgment when the people chose to serve sin and idols. And God, through Joshua, was calling the next generation to affirm their covenant faithfulness to Yahweh and to obey his word. And that meant specifically for them finishing the conquest, keeping God's covenant, and not intermarrying with the people of the land. They have this testimony from Joshua. They have the book of the law given by Moses. They have every encouragement and reason to follow Yahweh. But what do the generations after Joshua do? Do they heed the message of this book? Do they heed the testimony of the past? Well, we find out in the book of Judges, and the answer is a tragic one. What we're going to see as we proceed into that book is that Israel will betray its covenant commitment, and it will forget all the good that God has done for them. They will fail to continue the conquest. They will intermarry with the ungodly people of the land, and thus they will experience God's faithful covenant 
chastening. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Nevertheless, we can heed the message of the book of Joshua, and we must, even now, in the 21st century, even now in the midst of the coronavirus, this book, and even the account that we've looked at today, the accounts we've looked at today, it is relevant for us. So how should we apply it? And let me give you a few suggestions. How should what we've studied in Joshua affect us today? What should first of all cause us to behold, once again, the futility of opposing Yahweh, the futility of pursuing sin. Even a giant army with chariots and horses could not stand before Yahweh and Israel. It was easy for him to confound this army and bring Israel its victory. So then, in light of that, will any of us today be able to successfully oppose Yahweh? Will any of us today be able to get away with our sin? And consider yourselves personally. Are you at all in rebellion against God and against God's Son, Jesus Christ, whom God has appointed to one day rule the world and utterly destroy all sinners, all those who remain enemies of God? Do you refuse to love and serve Jesus Christ because instead you want to just serve yourself? You want to go your own way, a way that is, according to the Bible, futile, self-seeking, and sinful. Heed the book of Joshua. Heed the words of Psalm chapter 2, which says, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are they trying to oppose Yahweh? They're not going to succeed. The word from Psalm 2 is, kiss the son now, lest he be angry. Repent now and be saved before the judgment comes and you perish in the way. Because if you do not do this, Joshua makes quite clear, you will not escape the just judgment of God. So we should, on the one hand, behold the futility of opposing Yahweh and pursuing sin, but we should also, in a more positive sense, we should learn to rely on the faithfulness of Yahweh. Joshua said that not one of God's promises related to Israel's conquest failed to come to pass. And that's true. And if that was true back then, if God was being faithful to his word back then, then his word that he has declared since then, even to us today, will also hold true. Because God does not change. Our God today is the same God who promised to do good to his people back then in the days of Joshua. He provided perfectly for his people, and he will do the same for us. Yes, even amid the coronavirus. I mean, think of all the times that God proved himself faithful to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the sons of Israel, Moses, Joshua. And then think in your own life, all the times that God has proven himself faithful to you and to your family, if you are in Christ. So then, rely on your faithful God. He can be trusted. He will provide for you in the perfect way. Believe him. Rest in him. Don't be like the proud and double-minded man of James chapter 1, who can never decide whether he can really rely on God or not. This doubting of God is really a dishonor to God. It's saying, God, you can't be trusted. God, I, you, you haven't done enough for me. It's just pride. And it's a refusal to believe the word that God has given. Yes, God will bring you, even if you are in Christ, into difficult times of testing, like the one that we are in. But he does it for our good. As James even says also in James chapter 1, we can consider it all joy, not that the trial itself is good, in terms of the pain and suffering or discomfort that is within it, but because of the purpose that is being accomplished through it. 
We are be, being made more like Christ. Our faith is being put on display and shown to be genuine. So you can trust God. You must trust God. And if you do, you'll experience the Lord's peace and the Lord's blessing. Joshua tells us that we can rely on the faithfulness of Yahweh. And then one other suggestion based on this book is that we also should look forward to our coming inheritance. Israel received a blessed inheritance from God via Joshua's conquests. But that inheritance was temporary. If you know Jesus Christ, if you are found in him, then you have an even greater inheritance coming, along with all the saints. Not merely fellowship of God in heaven, but the new heavens and the new earth, ruling and reigning with the Son himself in your resurrected body, in your glorified body. You know, I've been thinking, and maybe you've thought about this too, doesn't this situation with the coronavirus make you long more for the world to come? No sickness, no suffering, no pain, no uncertainty, no fear, no sin. Such a world is coming. The scriptures have made that so clear. The Lord Jesus Christ is bringing a kingdom of life and righteousness to the earth. But who's going to enter that kingdom? Only those who are in Christ. Only those who have repented of their sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and as God and as King. They will be granted entry into God's kingdom. So you have to ask yourselves, have I done so? Am I in Christ? Have I repented of my sin and believed in Christ to be my only righteousness to make me acceptable to God by his perfect life and by his sacrificial death and his powerful resurrection? Along with that, does the prospect of reward in Christ and dwelling with him in the future, in his kingdom, does that propel you on in faith, obedience, and service? Remember too, and this has been an exhortation many have given, so I'm not unique about this, it's easy in this crisis to become very self-focused and self-indulgent. Hey, I don't want to get sick. I don't want to see people. Just sit at home, do various things, watch TV, don't care about anyone else anymore, whether in the church or outside of the church. But that's not our calling as Christians. If we've received the salvation that we have indeed reported to received, then we must walk worthy of it. We cannot... Simply choose to focus on self. Yes, the way we're going to serve others will change during this time. But we have a calling to fulfill. We have brethren to love. And we have those outside of God's sheepfold who need to be brought in, especially during this difficult time. We need to take seriously the coming of Christ and not settle for being Christian couch potatoes right now. There's important work to be done on behalf of the Lord. The gospel must go forth. The church must be built up even now. Think about how you can minister to other members of the church even now, even amid stay-at-home orders. This work needs to be done, and who will God use to do it? He will use you. Yes, even you, if you are in Christ. Every member of the body of Christ is important and has a role of building up the church to fulfill. In light of our coming inheritance, an inheritance that was even more blessed than the inheritance we see Joshua help the Israelites receive, let us do this. Let us proceed onward in the work of Christ. We will receive a reward. 
and we will dwell with the Lord himself. Well, that's all for the lesson this week. If you have questions or comments about what I shared with you today, please post them in the chat. I'll interact with you in, uh, after, after I pray. Or if you think of other questions or comments later in the week, you can email me at dafkaposha at gmail.com. I would love to interact with you, answer your questions to the best of my ability. As I alluded to before in Sunday School, next time we open up the book of Judges and we see how tragically and unthinkably Israel turns from God to serve idols in spite of all that God has done for them. But how does God respond? It will be in holiness, but it will also be in grace. And this is a powerful message, again, even for our own day. So I look forward to talking and studying the book of Judges with you. But let me close our official study time with prayer, and then, like I said, I'll stay on a little bit afterwards to interact with you if you have questions or comments. Let's pray. Our great sovereign God and King, Lord, in light of this wonderful book that we've looked at together, Lord, we know that we are to be changed. We are to be transformed. We need to see on the one hand that you are mighty to save. We are to believe you. You will bring us through the trial, through the fire, through the flood. And you will bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom for those of us who are in Christ. But Lord, the message of this book is also how foolish and how eternally destructive it is to oppose you, to serve self, serve sin, serve the passing things of this world. Because the judgment will come. The sin will be found out. Lord, how blessed are all of those who seek refuge in you. Because you are a rock that cannot be shaken. And Lord, we look forward to our coming inheritance. Lord, if you provided the inheritance faithfully for the people of Israel, you will also provide our inheritance. You have, as you've testified, Lord Jesus, gone to prepare a place for us and you will receive us to that place and even bring that place to the earth and the new heavens and the new earth and we look forward we look forward to that god and we're thankful for our place in it we did not deserve that even in the slightest bit no good work no ritual could ever produce that for us only your righteous life and death and resurrection lord god i pray that you would be with us amid this coronavirus crisis and lord this would be a time of special ministry even increased ministry Lord, to the people of the world who don't have the hope and rock of you, and Lord, also to our brothers and sisters. Lord, we know that when we serve our brothers and sisters, we serve you, and you are pleased. Lord, we look forward to the reward from that. Help us in our weakness. Help us through the trials and difficulties. And we know that your grace is sufficient, not only to forgive, but to transform. Lord, bless the people who have listened today, even as they continue to listen to other live streaming sermons, and other things. I pray, Lord, that they would indeed be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.